So I'm Fraser Bennett. I serve as PA's Chief Innovation Officer. And perhaps the biggest leadership lesson I've learned is that the most effective leaders are the incomplete leaders. Others have a different perspective. And more often than not, their perspective will be more valid than mine. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we interview PA Consulting's Global Chief of Innovation, Fraser Bennett, who shares the business lessons from one of the largest mobilizations of innovation, science, and engineering since World War II. We also discussed the first AI safety summit, including Elon Musk's view that the future of work is no work. And after Sam Bachman frieds guilty verdict, we ask why we are still suckers for charismatic founders. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. With me to discuss these topics is MT's senior writer, Antonia Garrett-Peel. The AI Safety Summit that took place at the start of this month was the first ever global summit on the technology and was held at Bletchley Park. The big news to emerge was an agreement that the most advanced tech companies, including Meta, Google DeepMind and OpenAI, would allow government regulators to test their new products before releasing them to the public. It is hoped this will apply the brakes on the development race and protect humans from some of the potential risks. Now, Nigel Shadbolt is a prominent data scientist and leading AI researcher who founded the Open Data Institute with Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He is also principal of Jesus College Oxford, a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford and a visiting professor of artificial intelligence at the University of Southampton. Wow, that is a lot of different jobs. He wrote a piece for MT in which he criticised the AI Safety Summit as being too selective. He called for data literacy at scale across all areas of society, with an emphasis on the ability to think critically about different approaches to collecting, using and sharing data. He said, if such a small group, as I'm meeting at Bletchley, holds all of the most advanced thinking in its heads and hands, then our society, our economy and the planet has a problem. To state the obvious, I think that one of the challenges is that the field is evolving so fast and is so complex that we're still kind of hashing out these big picture questions at the highest levels of politics and society at a rate that can sort of scarcely keep up with developments. So for example, the ethical questions like what bias is inherently built into AI, the forward looking questions like what will the future look like and what do we want it to look like. And at the same time, the background to all of this is that businesses and governments have their own competitiveness to consider and that of their countries. No one wants to be left behind. So in this somewhat febrile atmosphere, it's unfortunate, but not surprising, I think, that some people are getting left out of the conversation. On the other hand, one of the problems of having the summit dominated by conversations between these sort of high profile political figures and titans of the industry is that it feeds the perception that I think many people already have, that they actually don't have much agency in how the field develops. And in turn, I think that just encourages people to switch off and just kind of hope for the best. Yeah, I agree. And I think we've seen this with lots of new emerging technologies and particularly you know, Silicon Valley, social media springing out of Silicon Valley. It wasn't a very diverse group that was creating that in the first place and that led to problems. And also we've seen consistently that the regulators are way behind where the technology is moving. You know, these companies have got the money to bring in the best minds to work on things and they're kind of head and shoulders above the regulators that you know have less, fewer resources, not as well funded, are not able to kind of keep up as as much. But I think particularly when it comes to, you know, AI. I mean, the the genie's already out the bottle when it comes to social media. 
But with AI, it feels like the existential threat is much greater and it feels like the world really does need to get a handle on it before it, it gets out of control. And that's not to say I think everything is bad about AI. I think there's lots of kind of good and positive impacts it could have on the future. But I do think we need to be kind of approaching this with more care than we perhaps we have with other technologies that have emerged. So another big talking point from the summit was Musk's prediction that jobs will one day be redundant as AI will be able to do everything. He said there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want one for personal satisfaction. So this, of course, is just the latest big statement in a debate around the future of work that's really exploded since the advent of ChatGPT. And of course, there's lots of questions that this raises, not least about the desirability of such an outcome. And Musk did concede that one of the challenges in the vision of the future that he paints will be, how do we find meaning in life? So what do you reckon, Kate? Is AI going to give new meaning to the expression, life's a beach? Is the future of work no work? Well, that is quite a big assertion. Interestingly, this isn't the first time that he's made that pronouncement. You know, in 2016, he was saying that robots will take your jobs, government will have to pay your wage. So at least he's consistent. <laughs> <laughs> What it reminds me of is that point of view that said that when computers came in, we were all going to be working only two hours a day or, you know, I can't quite remember the exact figures, but we we're going to be massively reducing the amount of time we'll be at work. And yet here we are in a kind of burnout epidemic. And, you know, the same thing was said about the introduction of lots of domestic electrical equipment, like the, you know, washing machines and inventions that made domestic labor easier. And yet all that happened was our standards of cleanliness and hygiene increased. So we were still using that technology, but our standards had gone up and the, there wasn't any time saving. So I do feel a bit skeptical about the comment that there won't be any work in the future. And I feel like it's a sort of similar hyperbole about a new technology that won't necessarily materialise. Another sort of big obvious question this raises is how are we all going to earn money or have an income? I think Musk's two cents on this was we won't be on a universal basic income. This is quoting him. We will be on a universal high income because everyone will have access to this magic genie. Sunak's response to Musk's comments were, I am someone who believes that work gives you meaning. He said, work is a good thing and gives people purpose in their lives. And if you remove a large chunk of that, what does that mean? And where do you get that drive, motivational purpose? But I guess sort of ending a debate with another question mm. that everyone else is asking too. I'm going to be exploring this topic in more detail in a feature in the next couple of weeks. So please do send your thoughts into me. So the other big story hitting the headlines has been Sam Bankman-Fried's conviction for perpetrating one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The CEO of the crypto exchange FTX before it collapsed was found guilty on all counts by a jury of defrauding his customers. It's quite an extraordinary story. He set up the business in 2019 and presided over its multi-billion dollar collapse just three years later. Following the conviction, the Manhattan US attorney, Damien Williams, said that Bankman-Fried had perpetrated a multi-billion dollar scheme designed to make him the king of crypto. He said, this case is a warning to every fraudster who thinks they're untouchable, that their crimes are too complex for us to catch. I promise we'll have enough handcuffs for all of them. The question on everyone's lips is how were so many people so expensively fooled? So at the trial, there was a lot of discussion about his image, with the prosecution floating the idea that this was sort of a carefully cultivated facade to evoke a full sense of security, because obviously he's famous for this air of unkemptness in shorts and T-shirts. I think those are sort of his trademark garbs. 
Whether or not this was the case, it raises an interesting question about what our image of quote unquote corporate villains looks like. Does this have to be a sort of slick figure in a perfectly tailored suit? I also think that this obsession with his appearance prior to the collapse of FTX maybe reflects our desire for anti-heroes. So his air of unkemptness could be interpreted in whatever way suited the viewpoint of the beholder. For example, some might construe it as giving the finger to a sort of buttoned up corporate establishment whose conventions he refused to abide by. For others, it might be a sign of a kind of lovable nerdiness. Either way, it demonstrates the danger of getting caught up in someone's image, which should, if you're in these high-powered positions, really be irrelevant. I agree. And this is the latest in a series of charismatic founders who have come a cropper, not least Theranos's Elizabeth Holmes, who is also in prison for fraud. And there have been other founders like Adam Newman, although there's no fraud involved, but who was presiding over WeWork, which at its peak was valued by backers at $47 billion and has just filed for bankruptcy in the, in the last few hours. I think there are a couple of points to come from this. The first is that as a society, we seem to want these kind of charisma. We want to believe, as you said, in these anti-heroes and we want to believe in these sort of charismatic um, founders and these kind of huge earth shattering business ideas. We don't want the kind of slow and steady tortoise. We want the kind of the hair and the kind of the dopamine and the hit and the kind of high and the, the excitement of this rapid success story. All of which is understandable from a psychological perspective. But when you're talking about major venture capital firms pouring huge amounts of funds into both FTX and to WeWork and various of these other um, businesses, they really should know better. In The Telegraph, Matthew Lynn writes an interesting point criticizing venture capital firms, saying that first they overvalue weirdness. You know, this idea that a great entrepreneur can be sort of a bit odd, behave slightly differently from the norm, and that we kind of, you know, cult, we want that, as you've just, at the point you've just made, Antonia. But also, he says that the industry chases these outsized returns. He writes, this makes it an easy prey for hucksters and fantasists with grand ambitions, but insufficient substance to back them up. And he argues that the developed world needs patient, carefully applied capital investment more than ever. And then the second point is the need for more robust corporate governance. New research find analysts are often blinded by the truth bias. In Jane Sims' piece on our site, she talks about new research led by Stephen J. Hyde, who's the assistant professor of management at the College of Business and Economics at Boys State University. They found at its heart, the truth bias is this human tendency to believe that most people are honest. Now, you might expect highly paid professional financial analysts whose reputations depend on the accuracy of the information they provide to investors to be ruthless in their scrutiny of what CEOs tell them. But Hyde and colleagues from the universities of Texas, San Antonio and Nevada, Las Vegas and Arizona State University, they found exactly the opposite, which is that despite um, the analysts' comprehensive knowledge of businesses, they are as susceptible to CEO deception as anyone else. And in fact, the most highly regarded all-star analysts with the most privileged access to companies and executives are the most easily duped. And this truth bias, it seems, grows in line with analysts' confidence in their abilities and sense of entitlement as they rise in prestige. And the academics write, they may be less critical of CEOs in general, falling prey to hubristic tendencies or a belief in their own hype, which can reduce their level of scrutiny. Thus, analysts with the best reputations are the most likely to reward CEOs who are deceptive. And I find this fascinating. I guess it goes back to that old case of being too close to people, too in their pocket, too cosy to power. So I think this is a really interesting point that actually the people who are supposed to be objective and whose opinions we trust and believe 
actually are too cozy with power and aren't able to make those more objective assessments. Now, this episode's interview is Fraser Bennett, the Global Chief Strategy Officer at PA Consulting. He heads up innovation at a company with a genuinely impressive history of creating new products with clients. He was also a key member of the team who ran the COVID ventilator challenge during the early days of the pandemic, which strived to create 30,000 ventilators in eight weeks. He talks us through what happened and the business lessons that leaders can learn from it, including how doing things in parallel can make you more productive, why employing an experimental mindset can help leaders avoid zombie projects, and why there is no such thing as the light bulb moment. We also talk more widely about innovation, including his belief in stretching your ideas through 10x thinking, and why his heart sinks when he sees a primary coloured beanbag. So that's it from Antonina and I. Now on to the interview with Fraser. PA Consulting is a professional services consultancy with a difference. The chances are that you've benefited from a product it had a hand in creating. It was involved in the creation of stripy toothpaste, tonometers, which is the machine that puffs air into your eyes at the opticians to detect eye pressure, the UK's first telephone bank, First Direct, the first disposable home pregnancy test, automated number plate recognition, biometric passports and smart meters, London buses, digital countdown and Pretz coffee subscriptions. The company is celebrating its 80th anniversary this year, and on today's podcast, we're speaking to Fraser Bennett, who is the company's Chief Innovation Officer and Senior Member of PA's management team. He's going to give his insights into how to lead innovation with some specific examples. In particular, he discusses how during the COVID pandemic, the business led the coordination efforts to produce 13,000 new ventilators in just eight weeks. So welcome, Fraser. On your LinkedIn profile, you call yourself an ambitious creator of a positive human future which I love. So can you just start by introducing yourself to the listeners and maybe give us a potted career history and how you came to be at PA Consulting? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. It's lovely to speak with you. So yes, I'm Fraser. I serve today as PA's Chief Innovation Officer and I lead PA's business in design, engineering and science. I'm an engineer, I'm an innovator and an entrepreneur, I guess. I've been with PA for over a decade And prior to that, I was the founder of three technology companies, all based here in the city of Cambridge in the UK. But yet to elaborate on my role in PA, I lead design, engineering and science, perhaps something that some people might seem as a bit peculiar inside a management consultancy. But we are 550 designers, engineers and scientists, and we help our clients to bring new products, physical and digital, to life, to bring them into the market. Always inspired by a discovery in science, a new innovation in engineering or creativity in design. So we help many, many clients. And and in the introduction, you gave some examples of the sort of work that we do. Fab. And you have your very own lab as well in Cambridge. We have seven labs, I'm pleased to say. But yes, our main lab is here just outside the city of Cambridge, where we've been for over 50 years. Fantastic. And so your chief innovation officer, as you say, Innovation is a nebulous term. So what do you actually do at PA Consulting? What does it mean for us in PA? I guess we roll our sleeves up and we get the job done with our clients. So this is not just an advisory business where the deliverable is a piece of advice and we'll run away just in time for you to discover it might not have been good advice. (laughs) We'll actually roll our sleeves up and help bring that new product or service to market. 
dragging it, kicking and screaming through the challenges of what it takes to bring a new product to market. And so has it typically tend to work? A client will come to you with an idea they've already got for a product or? Yes, that does happen. But it's also very common for us to ourselves have exciting ideas about how we think the world could be better, how we can build that positive human future using our understanding of science and innovation. So we actively seek out clients that we'd quite like to work with to bring those products into the market. So it's definitely a two-way thing. Mm-hmm. We're a bunch of people who challenge convention. We're an awful lot of square pegs filling an awful lot of round holes, I think, in this place in Cambridge. Fantastic. And obviously, this is probably a, how long is a piece of string question, but how long do these projects typically tend to take? How do you set sort of timescales for innovation with a client? Well, it's actually a great question. Yes, of course, it will depend. But if you take a very complex medical device, we might talk about one in a moment, it might typically take two to three years to bring a complex medical device to market. Consumer products that we also work in the space of, their time to market has massively accelerated in the last decade, at least, partly with the innovations in technology and the processes, partly to do with the market. And we all know it's much easier to get products to face the customer than it might have been. So we're definitely seeing that timescale relax. We can go from a post-it note with an idea on it to a product for sale on Amazon in under 10 months. Fantastic. And obviously, when you're talking about Silicon Valley in the tech world, and they were talking about break things fast, etc, try and get the kind of minimum viable product to market, and there was a kind of real sense of trying to go faster. Has that sort of philosophy transferred over to you know what you're doing in the innovation lab and is that the sort of catalyst I guess for this increased speed Uh, is a large part of it and that mentality has also inspired the evolution of technologies to make that easier we could think of 3d printing as an example it's also inspired the evolution of processes that we might use to bring products to market. And everybody has heard of Agile as a technique for doing that. And so we, we will employ those tools and those techniques on, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. And how big do your teams typically tend to be working on a, on a project? Well, again, that will very much depend on the kind of engagement that we have. We also love to collaborate with our clients. There's a strong philosophy that we don't know the answer to everything. Our clients are usually expert at something or other, otherwise they wouldn't be talking to us. So we'll absolutely collaborate with client teams. I might have a project with one person working on it, or I might have a project with 50 people working on it. It, it really will depend on the scale of the work. Okay, so let's go back to 2020. Talk us through the ventilator challenge and maybe just start with, you know, we're all obviously aware of that news hitting and suddenly the kind of dawning realization that this was actually going to be a kind of life-changing event. But when did that challenge begin? When, did, when were you first brought into the fold on it? Yes, of course. Well, as you say, there we were, I'll never forget the day, the 13th of March, 2020. And the world was in a state of shock, frankly. Here we were watching TV pictures of hospitals in northern Italy where there were no beds, no wards, not enough life-saving equipment. And I think we maybe have become a little bit desensitized to just the impact that had on us. We really did not know what was going on in the world. And it was in that context that the phone call came in from the government's cabinet office. And they said, Fraser, we need to build 30,000 mechanical ventilators in eight weeks. Now, a, a mechanical ventilator is a very complex medical device. And we know a thing or two about medical devices. And as, as I mentioned earlier, it might typically take two to three years to get a mechanical ventilator into production. 
So you want 30,000 in eight weeks. Of course, our natural answer was no, that's completely impossible. And, and unsurprisingly, given the circumstances we were in, that was, that was not an acceptable answer. <laughs> and um, did you already have a relationship with the Cabinet Office? We did, yes, and that helped. And so over that weekend, we assembled a national team of experts across all the skills and disciplines that you would need. Uh, and by Monday morning, we were off. And we kicked off the program with a call to arms to the nation from the Prime Minister. And that set in motion a program of work over a period of 12 weeks. And to cut a long story short, we were able to deliver 13,500 ventilators. And indeed, what happened over that time frame, thankfully, was that the disease abated and the demand actually wasn't 30,000, it was 13,000. Mm -hmm. Over a period of 12 weeks, we were able to deliver 13,500 mechanical ventilators into hospitals in the UK so that no patient that needed a ventilator went without one. That's fantastic. So let's break that down then, because that's obviously a, a quite a big achievement. That Monday morning, you start off with that big call, and I think I saw the stuff about it, it was the biggest wartime effort, you know, calling to all the businesses to kind of get involved. How did you go about selecting the businesses that were going to join you? How did you manage and organize just that must have been completely chaotic? How did you... How did you manage to organise that? Well, I'm pleased to say it wasn't chaotic, but it certainly was energised. Uh, we had more than two and a half thousand distinct offers for help. And we had triaged more than half of these within the first five days of our work. We assembled exactly the right team of all the relevant stakeholders that we needed across technology and design and manufacturing and regulations and the clinicians, essentially the end users, and those that understood the disease, government representatives, including those who were, had a close eye on the finances, as they should, and indeed the ministerial team, who were ultimately in the position to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. And we pulled together that team, and they met every single day at 7.30 in the evening. Every single day this team met in order to drive the pace and ensure that the right decisions were being made. And off the back of that, we had the first ventilator design approved within two weeks. Wow. We ran 11 distinct projects in parallel, 11 ventilator development projects in parallel. This is a horse race where you, you must have a horse finish, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're not going to just put one horse in the race. And we sourced more than 40 million components for these ventilators from around the world. And remember, the rest of the world is in lockdown too. <laughs> this was a weighty challenge. Mm. So how did you go about sort of surmounting that then? Well, as I say, we had this, we had this decision-making body that was vitally important. And we sorry, how, how big was that decision body? Um, there were about 15 people okay. ultimately that met every day to make decisions. And then we would ratify those decisions with government ministers every single day. Mm -hmm. We pulled together 11 distinct teams around the UK, some of the country's largest companies, Companies like Rolls-Royce and Ford and many others who I won't mention in detail, but were supporting those projects. In parallel, we were scaling up the manufacturing processes before we even had a product to manufacture. And so there was a program of work around the manufacturing, around the sourcing, and of course, around the, the design and around the approval of these products. We couldn't cut any corners on the safety 
of these products. If they're a life-saving piece of equipment, then you better be pretty sure they're going to work. Mm. So presumably this is a very different approach to how it would normally work, where it's a kind of a linear process and you follow a kind of a path to taking it to market eventually. So you basically did all the things straight away. Yes, there was a lot of parallelism, both in terms of having 11 programs, as I mentioned, and also, as you say, running different parts of the process in parallel. And then importantly, thinking of everything as an experiment. And by thinking of everything as an experiment, you were able to then measure the outcome of an experiment and decide, was it a success? What have we learned? How do we need to modify our approach? And that enables you to then turn things off. And this is super, super important. And it translates well, I think, into the world of innovation. We were able to turn things off. If you think of the 11 projects as horses in a race, as some of those horses got closer to the finishing line, so we were able to retire those who were further at the back of the field and therefore divert our energies towards those that were more likely to Across the finishing line. So turning things off was a super important consideration as well. I think that's a really interesting point about calling it an experiment almost kind of takes it away, it sort of depersonalizes the project so that people aren't individually feeling like they failed on something. And I can imagine in a project like that, you've got lots of, as you say, big businesses, different teams, everybody competing to an extent, competing. They obviously want their product to be the one that that wins. So other than positioning it as an experiment, how else did you manage that kind of conflict. You make a good point. We went out of our way to make sure that this was not a competition and that there was one competition and we were all in it together. And there was one prize. And when we crossed the finishing line, we all get a medal, if you like. And so we did not try to inspire competition between these groups because that was not our purpose. Everybody was focused on the goal that we all had. And so if a particular project was turned off, that was not a failure. And by thinking of it as an experiment, remember, experiments don't fail if you design them correctly. You just get an outcome from the experiment. You learn something. And so it wasn't about success or failure. It was about having a really strong focus on the goal, huge amounts of over-communication, especially internally, in order for us to have this common objective. Mm. Over-communication, what kind of channels did you use? How regularly were you speaking? I think our natural optimism bias as human beings, maybe we forget just how novel the idea of everybody communicating digitally over Teams or Zoom or whatever, you know, it was, it was pretty novel, right? Mm. And now we had teams of 200 people across the country working on a common project and they had never met, never even met each other. And yet they were sharing in communications every single day. And we used information transfer platforms. We used the full might of the cloud to enable us to collaborate in in a way that I suspect, you know, here we are three years on is actually a very natural thing for us. It's amazing how quickly these kind of technologies have become a common part of our everyday lives. And do you think as a leader of people who are kind of coming up with new ideas and, as you say, experimenting, do you think it's important to kind of attend to that, I guess, psychological safety is what we're talking about here and people not feeling that they're failing. How, how important do you think that is to kind of being a good and successful leader of, of innovation? If you ask me to pick one thing, it might very well be that. We have to give people the space to be safe, to challenge the presumed thinking, because that's the only way that innovation is going to be born. 
And people have to feel safe to do that. And in my experience, you don't make people feel safe by telling them that they are safe. Hmm. You, you don't make a small child feel safe crossing the road on their own by just telling them it's safe and off they go. You make them feel safe by showing them. And so I believe that as leaders in innovation, we ourselves have to take the kind of measured risks that you should be taking in innovation. We have to show people that it is safe to do that and give them permission by showing them. Mm, I think it's a really important point. And I think leaders often forget that. <laughs> people, it's the same point about children, isn't it? That people look at how you're behaving rather than what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. It's much more powerful. <laughs> do what I do, not what I say. Exactly. I Great. Okay, so back to the ventilator challenge. You've got 11 projects going on. You're starting to turn ones off. What happens next? We were then able to focus on the smaller number of programs that we were confident were going to deliver, the variety of ventilators that we needed. Over that period of time, the manufacturing capability was being scaled up. Our confidence in the supply chain was improving. And we also had a better understanding of the disease as well. And this is why it was super important to have the users, if you like, in this case, the clinicians. They were on those everyday meetings as well. They would join our Zoom call in their scrubs. They're literally in the hospital treating patients. They'd come and join us for 30 minutes in a day to help us understand about the, the evolution of the understanding of the disease that helped us shape the design. And so all of those things were going on in parallel. And we were able to scale up that manufacturing capability to give you an idea of that scaling up. But this is a complex device that maybe has 6,000 components in it, right? This is not a bicycle pump in a suitcase <laughs> as a ventilator. One of the companies that we worked with in scaling up the manufacturing would typically have manufactured 40 of these things in a month. And in their last single day of production, they manufactured 400. Wow. So you can do the maths, but uh, you know, this is a very sizable uplift in the scale of manufacturing that we were able to achieve mm. over a very short period of time. How was that achieved? Because I'm sure there's lots of leaders listening thinking, oh, great, I'd love to get that kind of increased productivity in my workforce. How did you? Obviously, you don't always have such a mission critical motivator, but <laughs> what, what did you do differently? I think there is a good lesson to be learned here. And if you sort of take it out of the ventilator context, when you're faced with a big challenge, like, goodness me, how am I going to scale up manufacturing? It's very often the case somebody else has already solved that problem. Maybe not in your sector, not in your market with your particular product, but somebody else has solved the problem that you face. And therefore, your challenge may not be in coming up with a brand new solution, but your challenge is identify where are the analogs? Where is the parallel? Who has solved a problem like mine? And I always call it stealing ideas. How can I magpie? How can I steal those ideas and translate them into my environment? And that's exactly what we did with the ventilator challenge. So we used the brilliance of the UK, in this case, car manufacturing, right? They're fabulous at automation and process and quality and ensuring throughput and resilience of manufacturing. We're wonderful at that. We maybe don't apply that to mechanical ventilators, but we sure did in the ventilator challenge. And that gave us that scale up capability. I think that's a really important point, again, about creativity that I think it's often seen as, you know, the tortured artist on their own in a room coming up with all these genius ideas or Einstein having a genius idea. But it's all iterative. Yes, there is no such thing as the light bulb moment. Just to be clear, <laughs> innovation is a hard graft. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things because you're identifying the one thing you should say yes to. Mm, that's interesting. 
so back to the ventilator challenge. What happens next? Take us through the story. We were delighted with the pace at which we were able to scale up. We were able to deliver these 13,500 ventilators within the 12-week time frame that we had been set. Uh, as I mentioned, the requirements and understanding of the disease evolved as well as did the project. On that point, how did you cope with, with that? Because presumably the brief is constantly changing. And I think I read something about people realising at one point that actually you need to drain fluid from the lungs. And actually that wasn't something that originally when you're producing the ventilators, you had realised was a, a thing that needed to happen. So how, how are you coping with that constantly changing brief? Yes, that was a big challenge. We benefited by having 11 projects in the running, actually. And you're right, our understanding of the disease, typically these complex ventilators off which we were basing our designs would be used for patients who were unconscious. And so their breathing is being completely determined by the machine. But in the case of COVID, the patients are not unconscious, which means that they want to breathe spontaneously and they want to control their breathing. And if you force air into somebody's lungs and they're conscious, it's really very uncomfortable. Mm. And so that was one of the requirements of the ventilator was that we were able to accommodate the fact that the patient wanted to control their breathing. Thankfully, at least three of the horses in our race or three of the projects in our program offered that capability. And so that was quite an important discriminator. So having multiple options at our disposal was an important requirement. Mm. And, and how many of those projects were successful in the end? And I suppose you'd probably say they're all successful, but yeah, they're all definitely were all, all, um, <laughs> all successful. There, there were three different kinds of ventilator that we manufactured, and they each one had a slightly different requirement depending on the disease type, where the patient was, and so on. So, so in the end, there were three that we got up into scaled production. Oh, how interesting! How did you and your team, I guess, deal with the fear that must have been involved in that sort of project? I guess the fear of getting it wrong, the fear of you know, not succeeding, you know, and also the point that, you know, this is a sort of a very high profile public project that is very easy to criticise from afar. Yes, those are great questions to ask. I can't say that across the 12 weeks of the programme, and I, I slept in my home office for 42 nights of wow. those 12 weeks, right? And I was not alone I was not alone in that I was alone in the office, but I was not alone <laughs> in that respect, right? Yeah. I don't think that fear ever entered our collective minds. I don't think we were at any time afraid of the work that we were doing. And I don't mean that to sound in any way sort of arrogant. The whole sentiment was we have a problem here. We have a project to deliver on. We've got a project to do here, everybody. And there was such a collective sense of ambition and a collegiate sense of getting a job done that that was by far the most pervasive sentiment. Mm. And so it wasn't about fear. It wasn't about public exposure, particularly. And it wasn't a particularly high profile program until we delivered and saved a few lives. You know, mm-hmm. um, Were there any things that you learned from the project that you've taken forward with you to your new kind of client projects that you weren't doing before or I think I learned you better not say something's impossible because if you do somebody will hold you to account <laughs> um, so uh, I kind of learned that well don't answer the phone <laughs> might be another one <laughs> we learned a bunch of stuff we of course have worked hard to understand what is it that we've learned and how can we translate that out of what unarguably was a, was a peculiar environment to be in We've learned about the importance of decision loops. We've learned about the importance of being goal-focused, 
not task focused. We've learned about the importance of an obsessional over communication. And I think we've learned that if you manage it carefully, then thinking of everything as an experiment enables you to not get things wrong, not fail. And it enables you to run things much faster in parallel. And that a natural consequence of an experimental mindset is that you will turn things off. Mm-hmm. Because if you get a certain outcome from experiment, by default, you are turning something off. Mm-hmm. But certainly this mindset of experimental approach, being able to turn things off, means you escape this sort of zombie project infection that many companies suffer from. They're doing innovation projects for such a long time that they can't even remember why they're doing it, but they're still doing it because once upon a time, it was somebody's good idea. We're able to sort of cut through that in our own work um, with this approach. Are there any other sort of misconceptions about innovation that you regularly see in companies? I think you touched on it in an earlier comment, really. Innovation is not a job title, really. It's not a department. When I go into a client organization, perhaps, and see they've got a room or a suite and it says innovation across the door, and worse than that, you go in and there are primary colored beanbags, and my heart sinks. Innovation (laughs) is not a department. Innovation is a mindset. It's an approach. It's a way of thinking about things. It's a playful willingness to experiment and to be that square peg in that round hole and to be confident and safe in doing that. The more we can inspire innovation as a mindset, the more I believe we give permission to everybody to take on that capability within whatever it is that they might be doing. Mm. I know a lot of us work from home. What practical steps do you implement to keep that kind of sense of playfulness and breed that culture? Certainly one thing is about permission. So inspiring the leaders in our organisation to show others that they want to do it. Uh, And so we encourage our leaders to be inquisitive, to challenge the approach, to say, is there another way? Where could we learn from other things? Have you tried this? And and to really inspire that. So so we, we do that. I think we give people permission to really stretch thinking. So we we think about, I think it might be a term coined by Sony, but this 10x challenge. And you can take the parameters of anything, you know, physical or digital, anything in the world, and extrapolate one or more of those parameters by a factor of 10 to say, what if we needed to manufacture this for one-tenth of the price or in one-tenth of the time frame, or it needed to be 10 times lighter or 10 times? By, by forcing to think in the extremes, you force people to have to come up with a different way of approaching a problem. And that, that can really nurture a, an innovative mindset. Mm. And I think there's a lot written about the sort of power of constraint when it comes to creativity. And I think that's a really good point. What are you working on at the moment? Well, I guess to build on the question of constraints, I've got 150 projects going on right now. So, <laughs> uh, so we've got no shortage of things to do. I could easily pick on one that I think maybe is very relevant to the current debate around sustainability and the climate crisis. We're working on new technologies in the production of physical goods. So typically replacing single-use plastic and we're working on technologies to replace single-use plastic. We're working with a technology called Pullpack, which is a dry, molded fibre technology. It basically uses ground-up paper. It's nothing more than that. It's, mm-hmm. it's ground-up tree, sustainable tree, to produce 
anything that you might see in a supermarket that today is made of plastic. So whether it's as simple as a food tray or a yogurt carton or a drinks bottle or the plastic cassette that stores your paracetamol and bringing those technologies up to the scale of manufacture in the tens of billions of products per year um, is a really exciting challenge for us. And we're delighted with the progress we've made so far in eliminating single-use plastic. So that's a big distraction for us at the moment. Yeah, well, that's obviously very important with sustainability being a kind of rising concern for businesses as well. On that point, what are the kind of biggest challenges you see sort of facing businesses in the future? There are two big challenges that, or two I'll highlight here. One is it's very hard for our customers today to know where their competitor is coming from. And so we don't live in a world where every industry lives in its own swim lane And if you want to know where your competitor is, well, they're probably just slightly ahead of you. So look out of the front window or they're just slightly behind you. So look in your rearview mirror because the competitors come from the side. The translation of industrial boundaries is happening all the time. Think of the businesses that are launched off the cloud platform and threaten incumbent physical product businesses overnight. Think of the demise of the high street as an example where companies don't know where their competitor is coming from. And whilst we might help them in an advisory capacity to understand where their competitor might be coming from, we also help them in their responsiveness, their agility, their processes that they use to bring products and services to market so that they can be as responsive and nimble as their competitors. So I think that's one big area. I think that's really good as well to think about the broader sense of where a business is sitting. It just reminds me of the um, Netflix chief exec Reed Hastings making that point about Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. And I I think that's a really interesting thought because it really changes the kind of framing of how a business is thinking about itself and its place in the the environment. Yes, I had a, a client from a tier one consumer retail company whose products are sold on every supermarket shelf saying, our biggest competitor is Amazon. Why is your biggest competitor Amazon? It's because Amazon owned the eyeballs of the customer today. We no longer own the eyeballs of the customer because they're not having an in-store experience. Mm. So your competitor is coming from a very different environment. And that's a big challenge for them. Mm-hmm. If we were to pick one other one, the big challenge that our clients face, it's an age-old one, but goodness me, is it harder today than ever? And that's really understanding who your customer is, and why they have chosen the product or service that they've chosen from you. Because the ability for consumers to switch their allegiance, their brand loyalty is much, much thinner than it might have once been. The rate at which new products and service experiences come to market um, with different business models on different technologies is never been seen at this rate before. So really understanding who your customer is and what their motivations are, getting those human insights is a vital requirement for all of the work that we do. I've got a sort of personal question to end with, which is as a chief innovation officer, how do you personally keep yourself innovative? How do you keep yourself creative? What, what do you do to kind of make sure that you're kind of constantly challenging your own thinking? The best thing in my experience is to have two absolutely marvelous kids. And I think the day I stop learning from my kids is the day I will start to worry. And as a leader, the most effective leaders are those who are incomplete. The biggest lesson I have learned is probably that across 
most of what I know and all of the experience I might have gathered, that somebody else has a different perspective and maybe their point of view is more valid than mine. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fraser. It's a great way to end it and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.